Hello, folks, and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. And we are here today with a three of the members of the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee. And we're here to talk about wild oats, the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee, what this means to you as a producer, and why you should be keeping an eye on what this group is doing. Um, so welcome, Brian Tideman, Kelly Bowles, and Nathan. And I'm going to always mess up your last name. How do you pronounce your last name, Nathan? It's it's Esh Peter. Once you read it, it's exactly what you expect. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast, guys. It's great to have you here. Um, so I'm going to ask you to do a bit of an introduction so everyone knows who's speaking. Uh, and then I'm going to start hitting you with some questions about what's going on with you guys and what you're up to. So Kelly, do you want to start with us? Sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kelly Bowles. I own and operate Centerfield Solutions Limited out of Three Hills, Alberta. Uh, we're an agronomic consulting company. We don't sell any product. We're strictly advisory, and we provide all kinds of agronomic services. Uh, we've been I've, I've been uh, past chair and worked through the uh, Prairie Certified Crop Advisory uh, Boards in, in uh, Western Canada, as well as a few other boards locally agronomically. And we've been trying to work a lot within our business uh, with both clients and other people providing um the means of, you know, doing a better job with respect to uh, understanding what's going on in the fields with uh, weed resistance. And so my interest in this committee kind of stemmed from disconnections with both Jeremy and, and Nathan, of course, went to school with Nathan. And I've definitely heard Brianne speak a lot as she's one of the elite and upcoming researchers in Western Canada for weed resistance. And I definitely want to be involved in this committee to provide what I feel is kind of a boots on the ground uh, support to it. And we've done a lot of resistance testing over the last 15 years on wild oats and other weeds too. We're, get, we're getting into broadleafs that we uh, are testing that we're confident that there is some um, elevated resistance levels in. And so it's uh, in an effort to help the industry itself, but also, you know, the local producers. And for me, it's my clients. Um, so uh, really glad to be involved and glad to engage and really appreciate support from you three uh, moving forward as well as you're part of the committee. So thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Nathan. Thank you, Jeremy. My name is Nathan Ashpeter, as you mentioned. Um, I am a producer from Daysland, Alberta. Uh, I've also worked as a mechanical and agricultural engineer for about the last 20 years. I'm presently the project manager with the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee. I'm the only actual employee. The rest of the committee are, are volunteers. So my role in that capacity is to implement the projects that the committee and the committee chairs decide are the priorities for for the actions that we're going to pursue so i've been working on the field trials and the extension infographics and some of the other projects that we'll get into later that, that kelly mentioned that we've been involved with over the past couple of years yeah i'm brianne timon i'm a research scientist with agriculture and agri-food canada in weed management and weed science um, and I've been involved with the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee since its start, since it was an idea before it was a committee, um, and kind of involved right from the start. And with uh, with our our fearless leader Eric Johnson retiring, I've I've stepped with Kelly into sort of a co-chair position uh, for at least a little while here, and and we'll see where it goes from there. It uh, was certainly a 
a hard hit when when he you know really started to head towards the the retirement direction so um i mean he's provided an immense amount of value for western canada when it comes to to weed management and weed management science so um it's we we will certainly miss him but um you know brand we're we're happy to have you in the industry and have no doubt you'll be able to help fill that gap that that eric <laughs> leaves when he leaves but um, well, i don't think i'll be filling anything but <laughs> <laughs> so I, i'm still pouting he he pulled me into weed science so i'm i'm very much in in pout mode that he's retired but so so we, we've kind of hit on a few things that that the resistant wild oat action committee does and and projects that it's working on but um you know nathan could you maybe in a nice little bow, maybe give a description of, of what the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee is, maybe how it was founded or what the goals were when it when it was founded and, and really um, what it's trying to work on and, and what it's trying to do. Sure. So I guess it's a question of how far back you want to go with, with our foundation story. But in a nutshell, the... The Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee was born from a group of concerned producers in central Alberta, kind of the Forsberg Daysland area, which uh, most of whom are, are colleagues of mine and who I had been, I was involved at that level a little bit as well, not as much as some of the other producers, who got together and were expressing their their common concern about the emergence and growth of the presence of herbicide resistant wild oats on all of our farms and started talking about gaps in our understanding and gaps in industry knowledge about that problem and brainstorming some strategies for starting to combat them beyond the, I guess, the first few cookie cutter agronomic solutions, which are traditionally applied to that problem. Because in some cases that those things were not working anymore. They were starting, these producers were starting to observe situ like what you would call wrecks, situations where rotating groups, stacking groups, implementing in-crop solutions were not having an impact. And there were patches of resistant oats that were starting to take over the capacity of, of those regions to produce. So we, we sort of recognized this was potentially going to be a monumental problem and wanted to get ahead of it as soon as we could and start talking about solutions. And from, from that initial community-based group, we, we started bringing in some outside expertise, which then branched into some conversations with some very renowned researchers and experts in the field, which included, as Brianne mentioned, Eric Johnson early on, who very graciously brought his expertise to the table um, pretty much right from the get-go after we had initially contacted him. And this is going back... This would be this would be pretty close to five years ago now. Yep, so Eric, that's right, 2017. So Eric became involved in that, and then I don't I don't remember Brianne if Eric anyway Eric contacted Brianne or Brianne knew of the work that Eric was doing, and Brianne became involved because Neil Harker had her previous colleague who was also retired now had also been a very active and and well renowned well world renowned researcher in that field and had all kinds of fantastic expertise but we lost him to retirement as we're losing Eric now and Brianne is moving into some of the roles that both of those guys used to work in and has has uh, sort of come on board as one of our representatives with Ag Canada while well, she coincidentally works with Ag Canada and works in that field so uh and since then uh 3 years ago we formally organized into a subcommittee of the Canadian Weed Science Society, which is when we adopted the moniker 
of the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee. This is still all a relatively informal grassroots organization of concerned stakeholders. But our membership expanded at that point to encompass uh, several other people from industry beyond just the producers. So we have we have some professional agronomists, we have some chemical industry uh, people who work in agronomy, we have a few other researchers now, we continue to have a couple of producers, we have some academics, all of these people who uh, were basically colleagues of Eric and Brianne at the Canadian Weed Science Society level. And they've formed into the what is now the Resistant Wild Load Action Committee. And we've used that body to find some funding and to initiate some formal projects. And that's sort of leads into the work we've been doing the last two years. So the, so do you want, the, do you want to talk about those projects now or do you, or do you want to, where I, do you want to go? With, what do you well, want I to think about I'd, I'd, I'd like to maybe get a better idea of, um, you know, what is the mission to find ideas for new research projects is, is to extend knowledge that we already have or like what are, you know, if you could, pinpoint a few of the missions or the goals of this of of the group what 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 are they specifically looking to to get done really right at the at the broad level the the main pillars are pretty much exactly what you just described jeremy the the goals of the committee are i would say these are on an equal footing not in any necessary priority are to engage producers at the grassroots level with questions and inquiries and bringing forth both their knowledge and their gaps in knowledge to determine what research needs to happen and what extension needs to happen and what specific questions do producers, specific questions and specific problems do producers have and are they observing in their own fields that we can help facilitate research and extension towards addressing. So that's the first one I'd say is the grassroots engagement of actual producers and their representatives, which can be agronomists and, and various um, other steps up that chain. The second one is to implement some of those trials and research ideas into actual field demonstrations or actual plot trials, which we've started doing as well. And the third one is to extend both the results of the that work that we're doing and to collect i guess what you'd call the the state of the art in that field of research that has occurred over the years but has been in some cases a little bit disparate and might come from lots of different sources and might come from lots of different trials and lots of different is to accumulate that all into a common pool of knowledge and create a pool of extension documentation and resources and distribute that so that that's available to producers as a sort of a kind of like a one-stop shop, I guess, I think was even a term you had used one time, Jeremy, in one of our meetings as <laughs> a uh, one source where people can come and find everything we know about resistant wild oat management in one location and hopefully be able to have an opportunity to also interact with some people who are gaining some pretty specific expertise in that field, in addition to being able to access that documentation. I, I've been trying to make it seem like I haven't had my fingers in this project a little bit. Don't you call me out, Nathan? Um, so, so, okay, fantastic. That's that's a great explanation, and it's good to know kind of where uh, the committee is is hitting on in terms of direction. And um, you mentioned 2017 is kind of when this really started rolling. Um, is that when we really started to see a huge momentum across the province in Western Canada of of uh, resistant wild oats causing pressure like where 
when did this really started to move? And Brianne's uh, shaking her head and smiling at me. You know, where are we at in, in Western Canada? And maybe how did we get there in terms of, of wild oats? And then I want to pull in Kelly. And, you know, you talked about some of the clients that are impacting, uh, being impacted by resistant wild oats and, and management. Um, how exact, what kind of impacts are we seeing? Um how is that affecting economically and decision-making and agronomics on farm? What are you seeing? So um, I'd like to get an answer from both of you maybe on that. Okay. I, I can start a little bit on sort of the state of resistance um, and, and what happened in 2017. Um, so when we look at, at herbicide resistant wild oats, since it was diagnosed, we have pretty much a linear increase in, in, in frequency um, increases over our herbicide resistance surveys. So if you go back in time and you graph out, say, group one herbicide resistance over each year that we've done the resistance surveys, it's almost a straight linear increase across the years. Um, so the last time the, the full prairie survey was done from 2014 to 2017, we were talking about two-thirds of the populations. Um, if there was a wild oat in the field at, at harvest time, two-thirds of those populations were, were group one resistant. Uh, the current herbicide resistance survey is ongoing. It's been, the samples have been completed in Saskatchewan, but not yet in Manitoba or Alberta. Um, but from the, from the Saskatchewan survey, um, they're at, up at about three quarters of the populations now that have wild oats at harvest. Three quarters of those wild oats that are present at harvest are herbicide resistant. So we have continued our linear upward increase in Saskatchewan, um, particularly with group one resistance and, and expect similar in the other provinces. Group two resistance tends to increase a little bit more slowly, but um, anecdotally talking to producers, more and more of them are dealing with, with multiple herbicide resistance, group ones and group twos, some group eight resistance occurring as well um, already. So it's, it's becoming an increasingly difficult problem. And I think there's increasing acceptance that there's not just going to be a new herbicide product that's going to save us from from the problem as we've as we've kind of seen in the past with wild oat. Um, what happened in 2017, that is when um, a letter was written um, sort of from those those producers that Nathan was talking about and from, from Neil Harker, and that was taken to the Canadian Weed Science Society. Um, and it was presented as a resolution to the Weed Science Society that they form a wild oat action committee. And I have a train outside, give me a second to close my window before I drown everybody's ears here. Um, so a resolution was passed at the Canadian Weed Science Society to form a resistant wild oat action committee um, or wild oat herbicide resistance committee, something along those lines. Um, and that's when Eric Johnson agreed to, to chair that committee. Um, and then it took a couple of years to really sort of get organized and get formatted. But I, I would say that, you know, as, as that increase in resistance has occurred, that 2017 mark is where where a lot of producers were starting to sort of see that, okay, this is going to be a problem and there's maybe not going to be a herbicide solution and what the heck are we going to do and, and how are we going to manage this? So it's it's become a much more real in a lot of field problems in the, well, you know, most recent five years or so that it's like, okay, now this is on my farm. This isn't just a theoretical Brianne's a negative Nelly doom doomsday are talking about this is going to be on everyone's farm it's it's actually showing up now i would i would uh, tend to resonate both what some of what nathan said and both and brianne said too is that not only have we seen that you know problem areas that have drove us to kind of research a little deeper and get find out what's going on with these wild oats in these fields because it really does create some very quickly impacted areas but also those areas never stop i mean we're receding them or we're finding you know, we're finding that we can't stop them sometimes from 
producing seeds. So that's the biggest challenge is the, the reseed aspect of resistance. Um, and Brianne noted that, um, you know, we're trying to take a, a lot of uh, approaches to this, but also, um, you know, what can we do or what are we doing? I mean, the pattern is there already on fields when guys rotate crops, they rotate herbicide systems, they rotate um, some other types of um, operational patternings, whether it's, you know, light tillage or heavy harrowing, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we see, on, we see just that linear increase yeah, and I think it's what you used as a term, Brianne, was linear increase in the wild oak resistance populations occurring in fields. Not always increasing. Some of them are kind of maintained if guys change their aspects, if they go to strong silage or Roundup Ready canola or something different, they're able to actually accomplish a little bit of, you know, re- let's say I, I call it a little bit of recessionary control in the amount of wild oats that are going to seed and reseeding the seed bank so they can control that a little bit. But I, I find that. In, in our work and in our measurement and in our metrics of what's on the fields with our clients, we're seeing a pretty steady increase. I, I mean, like, uh, it's, uh, it's not really decreasing at this point. And the problem is, is we just don't have a lot of new tools in the toolbox. I mean, I know we're exercising some research through our committee, but I'm going to say that 90% of the time, the high clearance sprayer is going over the field to look after the wild oats, maybe more, you know, and that, and we're trying to go beyond that and say, well, look, like, can we not do fall apply? Can we not do spring apply? Can we do something, you know, like pre-seed, post-emerge, et cetera, et cetera. We've got all these layering effects and, you know, group 15, group eights, group whatever that we're trying to throw at these wild oats. And um, sometimes fairly successful, sometimes let's say mediocrely successful. And our goal is, our ultimate goal, and I know with my clientele, it's like, let's try to keep that seed bank at a minimum. Like if we have that repeated seed bank effect, even if it is three or four years after, all of a sudden, those best, or those, oh, sorry, best is a bad word, those strongly resistant wild oats, whether they're multi-group or if they're group two, group one, or if they're group one, two, eight, they're receding. Those are the ones that are problematically receding to the fields. And those are the ones that are given as a grief to manage. And, that, and that's where I think that we got to go outside the box and look at, let's say, site-specific management. And I, I've even had guys spray out wheat at the end of the year, 80 bushel crop, spray it out so the wild oat resistance doesn't expand on fields. Sprayed, had a client spray 15 acres out of a 320 acre field with Roundup when it was green. Nuke, nuke the wild oats so it wouldn't reseed so he didn't have a problem. And it's actually helped him. He was willing to make that little bit of a sacrifice on his side versus giving up and not doing some type of alternative strategy. And that really resonated with me. I was like, geez, if you're willing to kind of give up you know, 80 bushel wheat on 15 acres to control wild oat resistance. Maybe that's a, maybe that's something we can work with. Anyways, that's, that's a little bit of a food for thought thing, but those are things that are really happening. And I know that the layering effect is huge for us with respect to herbicides, but a lot of planning goes in and yes, you can, you know, it looks really good. And then you get a drought or then you get it too wet and it's tough to really execute. And those are big challenges. Those are real-time challenges for growers. And uh, I'm hoping we can do it, the work we can as a committee to make that better. So I, That's I, the goal. I want to tweeze out something a little bit there. You said, you know, the, implementing these layering practices and these management practices, sometimes you're getting semi-successful results and other times it's mediocre. What do you, what's that difference? Where are you, what is the difference between those two scenarios where you're seeing success and non-success? 
Well, I think it's the I think it's the commitment of growers to actually spend the money to do it because sometimes it involves three wild oat treatments in a grow season. You know, whether they're looking at you know pre-emerge, post-emerge, or two post-emerge shots, or even taking that area out or something, and that's a that's an added cost to them. And so for those guys to execute that all the way along through the growing season is a little difficult sometimes. Most guys are willing to go so far, and then they kind of say, "Oh, geez, I got a lot of money to this." Like, I'm like, "Wow, we gotta we gotta take it all the way because it's gonna help, right?" So we we really have to educate guys in that sense, I think, you know, that resistance wild oak control is an added cost and it's going to be maybe a doubling effect. It it could be in some cases, you know, these, these areas we try to manage, they're really problematic. It's about mapping them and adding costs to the project. But I mean, at least, you know, where to deal with this stuff. Like you can isolate out that you've got 10 acres to deal with, not the 320 at a, at a cost perspective, you know, And, and that's just, that's smart farming. That's, that's, you know, that's, um, uh, that's where we're doing this the same site specific farming. It's just like variable rate. If you put in the end where you need to put the wild oak control where you need to map that stuff, you know, they're going across the field five times a year. There's no reason why we can't digitize this and, and find out a way to really control these areas. It's doable. Technology is there to do it. I, you know, you, I you get this. In, so, yeah, go ahead, Nathan. Well, I was, was, I didn't mean to interrupt. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to add on to Kelly's comment that or echo um, Kelly's comment. I've, I've observed that to be a, a challenge to adoption of this and well, any new practice, but this is the one we're talking about today is, is to get that buy-in from producers at the get-go which is generated by the recognition sort of of the long-term significance of the problem, whatever the problem is that we're talking about. In this case, it's resistance, right? And what Kelly was like, the, the, the one client of Kelly that actually committed to taking out those 15 acres, that's a big deal, right? To do that. Dude. But if he didn't do 15 acres this year, he would have had 20 or 25 next year. And the year sure. after that, none of those 25 would have grown an acre of wheat. And the, the thing would have just kept getting bigger and bigger. So it's like you, you pay, you know, you, you, you pay a lot of rent today or you pay double the rent next year when the problem is worse. But it's it's a hard mental milestone to get over to because you can still, you know, that you're you're still going to get half a crop or a third of a crop on those 15 acres this year. And it's tempting right. to say, well, I'll just squeeze it through one more year and it'll be OK. And maybe next year I'll hit it twice and that'll take care of it. But the more, you know, the the, the more we tried the, the how do I put this? The less we try to get it with today, the, the, the more exponentially it's going to increase in the future when it comes back to bite us. And not only is it necessary, like the exponential increase might be to the point where we lose those tools completely on, on certain areas. So sometimes taking a, taking a big hit today is, is saving us a monumental hit in the future and just in general, right? Yeah. Uh, producers, lose enough crop to environmental factors to have to self-inflict uh, it's not an easy decision to make um to no exactly so yeah um so nathan you mentioned you have some projects that you're looking to implement um are they looking to tackle kind of some of these challenges of decision making or is it kind of new concepts and novel concepts that you're looking to bring in well, I would I would say it encompasses both of those points, Jeremy. The <clears throat> in terms of the decision making and arming yourself with knowledge, that's been the thrust of our extension program and all of the videos and infographics that we put together is to provide 
like I was saying before, sort of the state of the industry in terms of the knowledge base that exists in an accessible and easy to bite off package that anybody can browse through at their leisure and sort of arm themselves with the awareness of those different tools. So um, getting information to producers so they can educate themselves and decide what's going to work best in their own situation is a big part of, of what we're doing. That's the, that's, that's the basis of our extension program. And then looking at novel solutions and thinking outside the box and, and sort of what Kelly was saying earlier about there are no, sometimes the tools in our toolbox, the, the ones that everyone is aware of that we've been trying to use aren't enough. However, it's a, it's a billion dollar question what that next tool is going to be. And it's not obvious and it probably isn't going to be any one thing. It's likely going to be a combination of a bunch of small to medium management practices or cultural changes, the combined impact of which hopefully will give us a whole new angle on, on the strategies for resistance control. So we're looking at a couple of, well, I like to say when I describe the two specific field trials we've been looking at the last two years, I like to say are, are uh, old but new again, in that we're looking at inversion plowing from which is a historic technology to actually uh, see if we can figure out a way to specifically configure a modern plow to turn the surface layer of the old seed bank deep enough to mitigate potential for germination and reproduction, which is uh, quite a few variables in that. And that's an ongoing thing. And we're also looking at another very old, but new technology, which is pre and post emergence rod weeding as a strictly mechanical way of terminating seedling oats basically at the time of or shortly after seeding pre-emergence uh, as a completely different break from any chemical control of oats. So it's, it's one more arrow in the quiver of a way to sort of injure this monster, or hopefully kill some of this monster that takes us away completely from the, the um, rotation of groups and, and use of herbicides, which has been, you know, which is effectively what's been developing this resistance over the years. I wouldn't be able to go through this without bringing up the idea of, of no-till, minimum-till, and these management practices are cutting contrast to that. Um, so how do we come to terms with that idea? Um, it's it's a crossroads, right? It's sacrifice one for the other. So are we able to measure the the benefit to sacrifice? And you know, I would imagine that's a long-term question because we haven't even answered the question of do these practices provide value? But um, it's a it's a lot of investment to go in a contrary direction to uh, systems management and health soil health management practice uh, that's been kind of driven home for the past few decades. So how do we come to terms to that? I the I think I think Kelly already described it um, in that all of these solutions or I, sh I should I should have elaborated on that when I was talking about these two because the the plowing obviously is a is an extraordinary tillage regime. Rod weeding, on the other hand, as it's turning out, is a very low disturbance situation and actually fits quite well with with zero till and because and actually the part of the reason that it does work so well is because we have such nice soil tilth now at the surface because of the low disturbance and the high surface residue we've been maintaining for like on, on my farm it's 35 years now that the rod works in those conditions where historically a rod didn't work in stubble because the ground was effectively hard because of the way we we tilled after a growing season a rod wouldn't penetrate so that's a, an, a, 
a pleasant surprise and kind of a unique synergy of what you were just describing, Jeremy, where we've been implementing this no-till practice for a long time, and it's actually improved the conditions for what was traditionally part of a tillage regime being able to work in a zero-till regime. So the rod weeding, I'm very buoyed up about the potential for the rod weeding and its fit in zero-till. To address your question about how do we, if we can determine a way to make some of these tillage things work, um, how are we going to integrate that into a zero-till system? The answer from my perspective, or what I've always thought is going to be the, the answer, is exactly what Kelly was describing before, where we're only applying these basically as spot treatments, right? We're looking at the problem area, we're applying a solution to the problem area. We're not, we're only applying it where we know it's gonna have a benefit and where it's required, and we're not using it somewhere else where it doesn't. Because there are, we all know, drawbacks to tillage. That's 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 accepted science so we're not proposing that this is going to be you're not going to do the whole farm you're not going to do the whole field you're going to identify the problem where the cost benefit of the where the where the medicine is not worse than the cure and you're going to apply it to that situation uh on that limited spot where it's going to have an impact and you're only going to do it where you need to you know a spot tillage with a cultivator or a disc in the fall to clear up, to try to germinate a resistant area or to try to get an extra kill or to take out that crop. You're only going to, Kelly's, Kelly's client is a good example. The field had a problem with resistant oats. He identified the 15 acres that were the worst. He sacrificed the 15 acres because it was an economic benefit to do so, to gain that control. He didn't take out the whole field. He did it on those isolated spots where he knew the problem was. And any of these tillage strategies, the proposal and the method that we would extend would be the same approach. You identify the problem areas, only apply it as much as you need to in the areas where you know it's a problem. So if I jump in a little bit on this as well, the, the other thing I'd add is that these particular projects were, were sort of developed out of some of the feedback from our community-based group too. So this is what producers in an area were interested in trying. So that is what we are trying with them as a community group. There's, there's recognition that these um, particular tactics may not be effective for every region or for every group of farmers or, you know, farmers that are farming under completely different conditions in, in southern Saskatchewan or something like that. But they get people talking, too. So I've, I've seen some interaction with some of our projects on Twitter, and particularly the plowing, unsurprisingly, gets some of the no-tillers very excited and very emotional and, and a little bit up in arms occasionally. But it gives us a starting point to talk. Okay, you won't do that. I got that. What would you try? What would you try implementing on your farm? What might work for you? And it gets this whole discussion about res managing resistant wild oats on your farm going. It gets people talking. It gets people thinking. It gets people problem solving. And if this particular tactic won't work for you, what would work for you in your area? What could you try with growers in your area to manage this problem in your fields? So it's it's a it's a conversation starter too, right? It's it's. This group of farmers saw this problem and said, this is something we could use here. And that's why we're looking at it, because that group of farmers was engaged enough to try something. And if that can get other farmers excited and agitated either for it or against it or anything, but it gets them talking and willing to try something, then our project has succeeded, in my personal opinion. So does this tie then into... Um, really the community-based approach of this project. I guess I'm wondering, you know, this is a specific area where these producers have voiced an opinion and, and building projects off of that. Um, we know that there's producers in many parts of the province or in Western Canada that are dealing with this. Um, is there a grassroots or community-based approach that that could align with this? Or is this in that specific location or or bust? 
I mean, there's there's no reason that the results that we're getting from this can't be applicable to other locations. Whether or not it's a tactic they would try might be a different story. Um, but, you know, if, if we get other grassroots organizations going and they want to work with the com- committee too, I don't think we would ever say no, go away. It would be like, hey, more people worried about wild oats. How's it going? Sit down here, have a seat at the table kind of thing. Um, that's my two cents on it anyways. Um, and, and we've got farmers on the committee. So we, we have feedback coming in from other locations as well. We've got farmers from Manitoba and we've, you know, our, our video, our, our extension video, we had farmers from all three provinces touching base with them on, on what are they looking at and where we build that into some of our project ideas and stuff too. So just to expand on that for a second, Jeremy, um, regarding the grassroots and the um, adoption of, of like, for example, this, these specific practices, whether the practice, not an adoption, but the, interpretation of and and validation of these practices the uh, to your point about the grassroots these two projects were specifically started by two producers who were involved with the original community who are still involved with the original community group that's that began all of this process in the first place the one was the one started doing it with his own rod weeder on his own farm because he had a brainwave one night as he was lying in bed and the other one started talking about how do we, is there a way, does some technology exist to bury these things? Is there any possible, we haven't tried that before. Is there some possible way to do that? And coincidentally, these two guys are probably the longest term zero tillers in the in, in this region within, within quite a few miles in every direction. And they both struggled with this. How can we apply this spot treatment tillage if this is going to work when we've been so staunchly behind reduced tillage for so long and one of them actually said we we can't be purists about this and die on this hill solely for the sake of never cultivating anything we have to look at the big picture we have to look at holistic management and the way we've been doing it up till now has got us into the problem that we're in with resistant oats so the solution is going to be doing something differently. And maybe it's this, and maybe there will be some trade-offs, and maybe this is going to be a limited solution and part of a big picture, which everyone uh, suspected getting into this. But what I'm getting at is there, don't, don't die on a philosophy just for the sake of dying on a philosophy, right? There, there, there are always different ways to do things, and there's always a box to think outside of. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad, and just because... It, it, it has some drawbacks, doesn't mean it doesn't have a net positive. So that's why we're, we're very much about the big picture and weighing the pros and cons and using individual tools on an individual basis where they're required and where they have benefit. We're not talking mass um, practice change and, uh, and, and going back to plowing. Like, right? don't, don't misunderstand um, the potential application of these, of these tools. We're looking at, we're trying to think outside the box. We're trying to do things we're trying to examine ways of doing things differently that 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 we haven't looked at in the past, and it's very much directed by producers at the at the grassroots level. So, are there ways for producers to get involved or come see or or have be part of the discussion on some of these projects? Yeah, I think we're going to create some more liaisons there. I know I'm definitely interested in doing that. That's just one of the reasons why I joined the committee was to make it. Um, make information coming from the producer level up upwards, even if I'm a representative for that, that's great, you know, as a liaison, as an advisor. 
because um, we do see that there's lots of I, I think there's lots of interest from them too, but they, they they don't know exactly what to extend or what to participate in. But they're very willing to, um, you know, if they have these problem areas to try something. They're they're looking for they're looking for outlets. They're looking for other ideas. So, um, you know, we gotta we have to think about too the climatics we deal with and, and the shifts. Uh, you know, we've got definitely in Western Canada we've adopted the min till strategy. But there is a lot of areas that still, um, you know, exercise some tillage to some degree and some part of their rotation. And um, maybe they are mitigating some wild oat effects. And again, like we need to learn from that, too. It's, it's not just a matter of what we do on the extremes. It's a matter of what's done on the normal. And, you know, you, you look at what's happening with the patterning across Western Canada. And there's there is still some change coming. And uh, most, you know, most guys have been able to be successful at holding any weed resistance off or any elements of it. But as they are applying herbicides, they're still putting a selection process in the field. So they, they can't close the door on that and say, I want to be like Nathan said, totally men till, and then just, Oh man, I can't believe we got such a problem. We got to be thinking outside the box and just being ready to manage those problem areas. It's all about now. I think it's about really identifying and just holding those areas accountable and, and getting on them, don't let them be a problem and as much as we can. And yeah, some areas are big and some regions have real problems, but it's not like we don't have any tools here. You know, Ethan's pointed out some definitely on the, you know, whatever wing you want to call it, tools, but they are tools and they were used and they still can be used. It's a matter of uh, maybe maybe adapting the technology a little bit. And maybe we need to do more on the mapping aspect to do uh, better efficiencies. Well, I think that's that that's my big question is, you know, as Nathan mentioned, making old new again. Um, but there are people working on newer technologies for weed management that aren't chemical control but aren't tillage. Where do those play a role in the resistant wild oat action committee? Is that part of the discussion at that at this point? Um, just curious where where maybe more blue sky ideas. Um where's the discussion there? I can probably lead in on that one a, a little bit. Um, a lot of those blue sky technologies, so I'm going to go straight to, you know, my favorite topic, harvest weed seed control would be one of those technologies that that you might yeah. be talking about there. Um, a lot of that is is happening in, in our day jobs, in our full-time jobs as as research scientists or, or university scientists and, and those kinds of things where we're we're actively working to see how some of those newer technologies would fit in Western Canada and, and work for wild oat management. Um, and, and as we're getting results or as we're seeing adoption on, on something like harvest weed seed control, as an example, I'm working with producers that are adopting it, trying to see how it's impacting wild oat populations. So there, there's, that's where it's been really nice having sort of this cross industry representation because you've got farmers on the ground actively trying things that they can get their hands on right now. You've got research scientists that are, are grabbing some of that blue sky, you know, maybe apple pie in the sky type technology that may not ever work here, but we're giving it a shot and seeing what it could do where um, you've got industry folks that are, are grabbing those technologies. And it, this committee really gives us all a chance to talk to each other, to the producers, to the agronomists, to the chem company, to the scientists, to that we all actually have a seat at the table here. And, and that's been really nice. Um, in terms of more interaction with farmers, I just want to step back to that for one second. Extension and, and and having a presence at extension opportunities, that's been a goal of the committee. Of course, we really formalized in 2020 um, 
great during COVID where none of us could travel and nothing was happening in person. And so we, we hit some limitations there, but being out, being active, being present at, at some of those events has always been an intention of the committee and, and definitely one we take forward. Um, now that we finally have in-person things happening and some of us can travel again, that's uh, a little more possible these days than, than it was in sort of our early years. Future directions, future priorities. I mean, we kind of hit on some of the main priorities and the goals at this point. Is there, you know, a four or five year plan of, of what this committee is looking to work on? What does that look like? Do you want to touch on that? Yeah. I, yep. I can talk to that. Um, so, I mean, I, at this particular point in time, a big part of it is is finding funding. So we're we're working on funding proposals and things like that to to keep the committee running and keep it going. Um, so we're we're looking at research projects again that producers are interested in that researchers want to see tried in the field. Sort of again, all those those cross industry interests um, and looking at what we might want to put into a research proposal for that. Um, we're in some ways figuring out how we weigh in on the research side, because again, this is a volunteer committee and, and all of us have full-time jobs as well. So how do we, how do we impact the research side of things? Is that, um, in addition to some of our field research, is that talking as a group focused on wild oats, what research priorities should be on wild oats and helping distribute that to the people with money? Because we we we're trying to get money, we don't have money to give to people to do the research. So we're kind of an interesting committee that way, where where we're promoting research, but we can't actually fund the research because we're trying to get funding ourselves. Um, and an extension is a big part of it. You know, there's there's some scientists in Western Canada, John O'Donovan, Neil Harker, Bob Blackshaw. They've done a lot of work on wild oat, and some producers are really aware of it, and some producers you talk to and they don't know about it at all. And so trying right. to get some of that information out to them get it into a format that's not a scientific paper stuck on one of my shelves that's an infographic that's a fact sheet that's a video that's a talk on a podcast um that's important an important part of our committee is is really trying to make sure some of the knowledge and the data that's there is getting into the hands of the people that can use it as well so that's kind of i mean long term we want to keep on keeping on with with what we're doing you know put some practical projects in the field work with the producers figure out how we can impact research and when we don't have money to give to research, but we've got a lot of people interested in it on the group and, and keep getting information out there for producers. And I'm going to do a plug. You guys have already developed quite a, quite a few extension pieces. Um, did you want to talk about any of those or, or maybe just kind of list what's available at this point? Yeah, so we've got a whole infographic series. We're over 10 infographics for sure. If 15, there'll be 15, 15. 15 right now, yeah. 15 infographics. We've got videos. Um, if you're looking for them, we have a Twitter handle, um, at rwildoat, I believe is our Twitter handle. I should double yes. check that. Excellent. Thank you. At rwildoat, uh, letter R, not word R, capital R, wildoat. Uh, on Twitter and our um, website where all of this is posted is at weedscience.ca slash wild-oat-action-committee. Or right from the homepage, weedscience.ca, there's a link to us right on the front page and that takes you to the 
the, what I call the library where we store all of our stuff. And also at that, we also have an email uh, subscription that goes out with basically the same content as the Twitter feed, letting anyone who prefers to connect that way know when we've published new documents or some updates on the work that we're doing or anything else that we're involved with, uh, which goes out fairly regularly. And there's a link on that page as well to subscribe to the email list if you're interested in that. This has been fantastic. We've been probably chatting for 40 minutes now, so I'm, I'm going to have to bring this to a close here shortly. Um, Not chair for me. <laughs> I know. I, there's always more to talk about. I know. Maybe I'll have to bring you guys back. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, you know, obviously head to that website. I'll add a link um, into the show notes so anyone who's interested can click and link through there. Um, the subscription um the the twitter handle um i'm curious is there field days happening this year that producers can get involved with where might those be and and um is there any other ways that they can make sure that they're um they're they can they can meet at these these events and the other thing i wanted to talk about or ask a question of is if there's produced two producers right now sitting in a coffee shop somewhere in saskatoon or saskatchewan or somewhere thinking we should start a faction um out uh, out this way is that something is that something you guys are interested in hearing from of 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 groups kind of developing in different parts of uh western canada unequivocal yes <laughs> <laughs> yes we absolutely are interested in that jeremy and the and that's actually something we've been trying to work towards despite all of the limitations of, of extending one's presence into more real life situations with public health restrictions over the last while but now like brianne mentioned that we're getting back to normal in some respects we're extremely interested in engaging with producers at the grassroots level from other regions and from the other provinces because we know many of these problems are the same and many of the solutions are going to be similar and we're looking for input across the whole section and a great way to get in contact with us would be that same email subscription uh, to just it goes to me and and you can immediately contact the committee through that it's um it's wild oat action at gmail.com and it's also at the top of the link like i mentioned on the canadian weed science society site so you can directly contact the committee there or you can just search for us and it'll pop up the library of documents and all of those documents also have our contact information as well so contact us through our twitter or through that email and we're extremely interested in communicating with and developing relationships with producers in other areas awesome and field days anything planned for this coming year yet for sure, there will be another field day with the ongoing plot sites in central Alberta that we started last year. Uh, the date will be to be determined. It'll be in the kind of Daysland Roseland area where the plots are located. And then there, there likely will hopefully be some other stuff, but that's all still in the planning works. And of course, like Brianne mentioned, sort of contingent on where our funding situation shakes out in the next few weeks. Perfect. Any last thoughts or anything before we, before we close out? No, just going to say that uh, as a, you know, as a real, I guess we're a bit of a universal committee here. We're not like we've got people representing us from all of Western Canada here. Uh, so, yeah, that's it's, it's non-exclusive. And also, you know, when you mentioned about Jeremy, about somebody firing up a group or having some interest. Well, I mean, we might as well just kind of keep building the group itself because it's already established. There's lots of things behind it. So, I mean, the more we can... Uh, you know, see those needs if they're in, you know, Southern Manitoba or Eastern Saskatchewan or whatever, uh, long as we can kind of keep connecting everybody together and just keep it centralized and keep it powerful uh, and, and really hone in on those uh, areas that we're trying to focus for funding and, and 
projects and make it make it make it more successful i mean if you don't if we get too split up and then it's just fragmented it might not work as well as having that you know that interested party let's say there is three growers or whatever in in uh you know saskatoon area that just connect with them god everybody's got to be talking so i think that the big thing is is open up that communication highway a little bit get everybody you know recognized everybody talking and that and that's a that's going to make this successful Wonderful. Well, thank you all for your time today. This has been uh, a great conversation. I, I, I do truly appreciate it. So um, hopefully we will be having this conversation in a year again with more information and, and more advances with the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee. So thanks again. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank great you, Jeremy. Time. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.